two topics this week. The first is the Arizona budget, which surprisingly was completed earlier than just about anybody expected. The second is threats to our legal system. Our analyst this week is Tom Ryan, attorney and observer of the political scene. From KTAR News, this is The Think Tank, hosted by Dr. Mike O'Neill. Well, surprise to the surprise of everybody except our occasional gift, uh, guest, uh, Chuck Coughlin, uh, the, uh, we have a budget. And it is the middle of May, not the evening of the 30th of June. Uh, kudos for that. I, I, I just say that as someone who knows a little bit how state government works. And imagine you were running an organization and you didn't find out until midnight on the 30th of June what kind of budget you had to work with on July 1. That aspect, the, the timing of this, you have to say, was a good thing for state agencies uh, that want to plan. Uh, it is uh, there are some ruffled feathers on the Democratic side in particular because this budget seems to have been the product of negotiations between Governor Hobbs on the one hand and the Republican leadership on the other. And as near as I can tell, uh, the budget was presented then fait accompli to the Democrats, who, of course, having not been a part of the process, uh, a fair number of them didn't like what they got, but a majority voted for it, along with all of the Republicans. Tom Ryan, what's your take on what happened? <laughs> well, I, I think you've pretty much nailed it there, but I'll tell you this. It appears to me that Katie Hobbs uh, was operating under the um, process of it's better to or easier to ask forgiveness than to uh, request a permission. So she uh, she agreed on a number of things like uh, not limiting the uh, ESA vouchers. Uh, there is a whole, like almost a $2 billion slush fund for each of the 90 legislators uh, to divvy up for their various districts and pet projects. There are a lot of things in there that uh, I, I think are unsavory. However, uh, I also think that uh, this was a case of real politique uh, on the part of the people who were negotiating it. And so, uh, yes, the, the Democrats complained about it. Um, the Republicans who are uh, small business uh, or small government Republicans showed that's probably not as true as they'd like to not when say. You give, not when you're given $30 million to spend as you wish. <laughs> yeah, I have a – and let, let's talk about why that's problematic, the, the $30 million per legislator. There are 90 legislators. That means the uh, state of Arizona has uh, ceded control – and uh, of of almost two billion dollars, and uh, they're now basically their own little governors in each of their own little fiefdoms. That is not how we should be governing the state of Arizona. I understand that Hobbs signed the budget because it was either that or not get the budget well, done. If I could comment on that, uh, you know, one thing I've been saying since the very beginning is very clear to me, which is the governor has the veto power. And the Republicans do not have the votes to override a veto. On the other hand, the Republicans do have the votes on their own to pass anything they want. So it seems to me that uh, that says you have two essential parties in this. And, and earlier on, the governor presented her own budget, which was a pure Democratic budget. The Republicans, which was their right, completely ignored it and passed a pure Republican uh 
alternative, which she immediately vetoed. Right, so, the skinny budget. Yeah. So what it, what does this tell you? It says, you know, folks, you you can argue about this till the middle of May or the end of June or or whenever, but the only way you're going to get a budget signed is some form of compromise wherein neither side is going to get exactly what they want. Now, the interesting thing here was sort of the cutting out of the Democrats in the legislature from the process. Now, when I I said the governor's an essential party, yes, the Republicans in the legislature are an essential party, the Democrats aren't. (laughs) And that's how— I mean, you did not need them to do anything. Now, you got a majority of them in the end. Correct. uh, And and I think—I mean, the governor wasn't going to— agree to something that only the Republicans wanted. The problem we have with the budget process now in the state of Arizona is the complete lack of transparency. Mm-hmm. The respective parties hold their budget close to the vest, uh, and we don't get to see what's going on behind the closed doors until uh, it's presented as a fait accompli like it was here. And then it doesn't get voted on and, and uh, debated in the uh, in broad daylight. It gets passed uh, in the wee hours of the night or the As early a morning. single package. Correct. And let me let me tell you a little bit about what's in that package, okay? Uh, we have, and, and the context of this is, there's about a $2 billion one-time surplus in the budget. And there's money available that is not liable to be available next year, which really bodes badly for what I don't expect this to be replicated next year. So they're able to pour $200 million into K-12 education, uh, $183 million for school buildings, uh, $150 million for the Housing Trust Fund for affordable housing, $60 million for homeless Six hundred million more, a much bigger number for road projects, and for the Republicans in particular, a one-time tax bait rebate to people based on on children on their tax forms, uh, only to those who are paying taxes. By the way, so that also skewed it. Uh, that was a uh, one-time payment of two hundred fifty dollars tax rebate per child. So there was a lot of money to be spread around to grease the wheels. I don't think this replicates next year. Most people expect some retrenchment in state revenues, and if we have even a tiny re- retraction of the economy, Arizona gets hit abnormally hard because we are so invested in the sales tax, yes, which is extremely volatile. If it were based on income taxes or property taxes, those are much more state. Those don't wildly go up and down. But sales taxes are based on mostly discretion or a lot of based on spending, a lot of which is discretionary. If if not only if we're in a recession or if people fear a recession, they tend to pull back, which means state revenues go down disproportionately in Arizona. And that means that next year you're going to try to make a budget with possibly no slush fund to work with at all. Right. And also it, it will affect cities because when you're talking about spent discretionary spending, there are city sales taxes. Um, you know, people put off major purchases, mm-hmm. appliances, cars, things like that. Again, that that drives down uh, the uh, available revenue for the state. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't been that very. We have not been very good about managing our our assets. We have not been very good about managing our 
our rainy day trust fund. We have not been good about managing our uh, land grant trust fund for public schools. Uh, and, you know, we've done they've done lots of gimmicks over the years. Uh, we sold and leased back uh, our our major buildings downtown, uh, which was a way of evading the requirement of a quote-unquote balanced budget. It was gimmickry that it allowed them in a in a bad economic time to spend money that they wouldn't otherwise be able to spend. Look, we need taxes to, to work as a society. That's a basic. And the Republican Party of, it's not just low taxes. They want to get rid of all taxes. And the problem is then that you're just living in a libertarian society then. That's not helpful. And And what they're cutting, though, it's not just cutting taxes in general. They're going after the uh, least regressive taxes, yes. income taxes, which are disproportionately paid by people with higher incomes, leaving untouched sales taxes, which are paid more by lower. I mean, if you if you earn $25,000 a year, you're spending all of that money, all of that subject to sales tax. If you earn 10 times that amount, you aren't spending that much more on sales taxable items but you're subject to income tax. So it's which tax do you do you cut? Yeah. And the Republicans have tended to cut taxes that are paid bar by middle class and, and wealthier, upper middle class and, and wealthier. And corporate taxes. Mm-hmm. They have gutted our corporate tax rate here mm-hmm. in the state of Arizona. We we have the we generate the money. We have the capacity to pay for what we need. We have the capacity to plan and uh, for the future and preserve our, our, our all of our trust funds. And the question is, are we going to let politics come in and, and gut those things so that, you know, somebody can stay in office? Or are we going to we need a lot more transparency on these things? And we're just we're just not getting them. That's to see a budget pass this late at night is depressing. You know, in a rational world, it might if you're sitting on a surplus it might normally make sense to look at well, can we live with it? Can we cut back taxes? Mm-hmm. And but, however, the flip side of that is when you get into a recession, that's when you most want to spend money, not only stimulate the economy, but certain social needs go up: homelessness, healthcare, some other things. When more people are out of work, and the problem with our system is structural, which is a simple majority vote can cut any tax. Right. And it takes two thirds to increase it. And let me suggest you ain't never getting two thirds. Correct. Because you have more than third, a third of the Arizona legislature will simply say no way, no how. Right. And when people pass that by initiative, by referendum from the legislature, the legislature knew what they're doing. They're saying that is a very good long term plan to cut our taxes because we can cut a little here, cut a little there, knowing full well that none of those will ever come back and be voted on by the people. Correct. And in rare instances, when we have gone to the people for a tax increase, the most saleable tax has always been the most regressive, which is sales tax. Correct. So, for example, and, you know, we... Well, the legislature didn't pass. That's a whole other matter. Did not pass an authorization for Maricopa County to to do a vote on a sales tax for highways, which in itself is weird because uh, all of the uh, counties in Arizona have that right except Maricopa. And why not? Usually most things you give greater authority 
to larger states because they have more professional organizations and, you know, a bureaucracy to do things. And and frankly, our bigger level, I mean, Maricopa County is already bigger than what is it about half the states of America. Yeah, it's a populous so, county. So, um, you know, in almost every other, for example, judges, for example, we give certain authority to the larger states that we, uh, the, I'm sorry, the larger counties, which we don't give to the tinier ones. Well, the the reason on that is uh, in if you're down in Cochise County, um, there aren't that many lawyers and there aren't that many people and they're more likely going to know who it is. And so it's easier to elect um, someone, you know, that for two or three positions in Cochise County, you come up to Maricopa County and we're over 100 judges here. I think we're probably about 125, mm-hmm. 120 to 125 judges now. When you open up your ballot <laughs> for judicial retention vote, uh, that's daunting to see, you know, 40 or 50 judges on that ballot yeah. that you never heard of before. And we routinely just uh, keep all of them. <laughs> I, I mean, how many, the two or three cases uh, where we threw somebody out? This this last cycle, they threw three of them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them I actually liked a lot, but uh, mm-hmm. one of the, they he got thrown out basically because he had what they call robitis, meaning that he was he came in and was uh, very pompous, officious, and angry, and things like that. And it's too bad because he's a very bright judge otherwise, but. You know, people said, no, you're out. So walking in as a judge and being a little deferential goes a long way. Well, you do get evaluated by the lawyers. Should, yeah, and, yeah, lawyers, and, uh, jurors, uh, litigants. Yes. And by and large, I think, you know, those things should be paid a lot of attention to in general. Yes. You know, essentially, it encourages good behavior. I think you're going to see more of it at the Supreme Court level as uh um, you know, as people realize that there is power in the judicial retention vote, there's been a few campaigns, but so far n- nothing has uh, nothing has knocked anybody out at the Supreme Court level. But that day is coming, uh, not because I want it to, but because it probably is. that would be interesting. We have a what looks like a, almost a lifetime stacked Supreme Court. You had a Heavily Republican court, I think four to one to begin with, and then Ducey expanded it to nine. Ducey, Ducey has stuffed and stacked both the uh, Arizona Supreme Court and the Arizona Court of Appeals. And so when I hear all the uh, Republicans uh, you know, groan and, and moan about uh, expanding the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, you ought to see what they did here in Arizona. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, by the way, there is no magic to nine. Uh, the, the, the Originally, the magic to nine was simply this. Uh, for every circuit court of appeals, there was a Supreme Court justice. And now you're about four short. Yes, exactly. Because of so the non, 13. nine circuit courts, but there's, there's 13 maritime court. And a couple yeah, of so there should be, there sh- if you follow the rule mm-hmm. of thumb, there should be 13 members of the U.S. Supreme Court right now. And the number nine has not been, I mean, that, that number of Supreme Court justices has been all over the map. Yes, it's been larger and smaller, both. Yes. Uh, so there's... And it only takes legislation, not a constitutional amendment to do that. It, it probably wouldn't be an issue, except that there's been a lot of political manipulation uh, on on the U.S. Supreme Court. And the Democratic Party really has to wake up and understand they've gotten outplayed big time well, by Mitch McConnell. Well, I think it goes back for it goes back to Richard Nixon. Yes. When there was a concerted attempt to completely alter the composition of the Supreme Court, and yes. it basically took about 50 years to pull it off. Uh, he, oh, he was great at that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying that was, I'm not saying that with any mm-hmm. pleasure. Uh, he got, uh, he got uh, Rehnquist up there as chief judge, chief justice. Um, and uh, I think that was Reagan. 
No, that was. I mean, I, oh, excuse I, me. He got he got him on the court. Got him Reagan, on the court. Reagan named him chief. Correct. But uh, shoehorning. Nixon called him Wrenchburg. You remember that? Yes. <laughs> uh, he was. He had a lot of baggage, but they they got him on. Uh, they got Abe Fortas off, if you recall, because of a. For about, uh, yeah, for doing a small fraction of what uh, Clarence, Clarence Thomas and <laughs> Jenny Thomas have done. Yeah, it's... yeah. Abe Fortas was nominated by Lyndon Johnson to be uh, chief justice. He was already sitting on the court. Right. They dug up some acceptance of, of uh, good goods from uh, a Texas crony of his and uh, presented him with an alternative of get prosecuted or resign your seat. Correct. And he he resigned. And uh, we're not seeing the same kind of action with Clarence Thomas, even though it's it's very clear he's taken hundreds of thousands of dollars of gifts. And, and pretty much the same deal, isn't it? Yes. I mean, and uh, his wife was paid by uh, this Harlan Crow at the same time. Uh, Harlan Crow had an amicus brief on a Voting Rights Act. <laughs> The uh, you know case that was in front of him that um, Thomas wrote an opinion favorable to Harlan Crow. Yeah, it's it's corrupt. Unfortunately, we're not seeing any resignations. John Roberts doesn't seem to be too interested in uh, you know getting the situation under control, and uh, it's embarrassing as as an American lawyer. It I'm embarrassed. Seems like what has happened is that the courts have become completely politicized. And the reason you don't, as as for example, the, in the Abe Fortas case, long time ago, but right on point in terms of uh, its um, the facts of the case, was he had done something he shouldn't do, taking gifts. That was a no-no. That was prosecutable. He was going to be prosecuted by a Democratic-run Department right. of Justice because, for all intents and purposes, he, I mean, I think he was guilty of it. They presented him with the alternative, you either get prosecuted or you resign, take your pick. He chose to resign. And right now, uh, I, I think if you tried to do something like that with Clarence Thomas, the Republicans would scream because they know he's a critical vote in oh, yeah. keeping what is now a substantial majority conservative. They got a super majority at 6-3. Yeah. And, and nobody's screaming about activist judges anymore. Oh, yeah. that was that was something used against uh, when when the courts were leaning in the other direction. That was used, but nobody. We're, we seem to be okay. Or, oh, it's the, a, this the, is yeah. a very activist court right now. They've gutted um, they've gutted campaign finance laws. Those are mm -hmm. virtually dead. They've. Gutted, I mean, the, uh, ignoring a precedent on Roe v. Wade, a fifty year precedent. Correct. That's they, they've gutted well. The two things are going on when we talk about this court as an activist court. Number one is the the concept that you just described, stare decisis, meaning you know we 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 started that that means basically pay attention to precedents. Correct, and so the idea is you you know it, it's supposed to eliminate the the political leanings of the uh, the justices and say, look, this is what has previously been decided. There's no good, nothing new has changed. Uh, and and so uh, we're going to continue on with this line of, of uh, legal reasoning. And the, the benefit of stare decisis is, is the the reliability, dependability of the American justice system stays intact. If you don't do that, you have basically a purely purely political decision. And that's where we and are. And you reverse and you can't count on anything because 
what happened in the past doesn't play anymore if the court changes. Stare decisis is dead at the Supreme Court level, mm-hmm. uh, unless it's something that politically you know tickles their funny bone. Mm-hmm. The other aspect of a, when we talk about an activist court as it relates to the Supreme Court is, um, are they giving deference to legislative enactments? And the answer is, since the Republicans have taken control, the answer is no. They gutted, uh, you know, the the, the McCain-Feingold, um, you know, campaign finance and, and, law. But when they did that, they said, "Oh, the answer was disclosure," which is, the, and they, that's never. And now happened. we don't have disclosure. Correct. Secondly, uh, we, you know, they they gutted the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Huge activist thing about something that has been around for over 50 years. Right, right. Uh, you know, so all of these things, now they're going after, now they're even going after, um, uh, you know, the regulatory system. We have a lot of regulatory protection in uh, the United States. In most Supreme Court cases in the past, they've given deferential treatment to determinations by things like the Food and Drug Administration because the Food and Drug Administration is warehoused by people who know, scientists and medical doctors. Isn't that called the the Chevron uh, uh, precedent? Yes. And and that is at risk now. And, uh, you know, so all of these protections that we had built up uh, during the uh, the Warren court and the Berger court are now fastly being dissolved. But there's a common thread, isn't there, in it, in that what these involve consistently is ignoring many decades of precedent. Correct. So when they, you know, you're absolutely right with your initial comment that we're not hearing any more about activist courts. Uh, But this is the this, without a doubt, is the most activist court, not just in our lifetime, but in the history of the U.S. Supreme Court, without a doubt. And it seems like this doesn't change unless and until the composition of the court changes. And that's a pretty tough ball to do. That's pretty tough ball. That's exactly right. Tom Ryan, uh, two topics, always interesting. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you.